and welcome to the 21st Rewrite. In this week's episode, we take a look at the screenplay to the film La La Land, written and directed by Damien Chazelle, and the second in our three-part series, which began two weeks ago with Whiplash, and will be concluded in our next episode with First Man. The 21st Rewrite is a podcast aimed at story lovers and storytellers, so we hope you find this week's episode useful, and we thank you again for continuing to support our show. As usual, we do discuss the full scope of the story, so if you haven't seen the film and don't want to know how it ends, now would be the time to select another episode. Without further ado, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to The 21st Rewrite, the podcast where we discuss a screenplay from the 21st century and the process of writing it. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. Hi, I'm very happy to be here, and today we are going to be talking about La La Land, written and directed by Damien Chazelle, and this is a continuation of studying a little bit of uh, Damien Chazelle's work, starting with Whiplash, now with La La Land, and I'll start by saying that I really love this movie, and I think it's uh, it was a really interesting experience reading a script of a musical. I've never read a script that's based on a musical, so... I don't know how traditional it is in that sense, but it was interesting to see that it didn't have any of the musical numbers lyric by lyric. It just kind of, it was a completely different sort of structure. Um, And so we'll be talking about how this script evolved because we read a very dated script from 2013. So that's about three years before the film came out. Exactly. And it, it ties in with what we were saying last time about how this was the project he was really focusing a lot of his hopes on and ended up making Whiplash because mm-hmm. it would be cheaper and much easier to make than this huge... I mean, the first uh, first page of the script requires you to close one of the freeways in Los Angeles. So yes. you need a budget. Yeah, and I believe the budget for this was $30 million or something like that, which is not incredibly... That's not a lot. For for a film, no, uh, he was definitely still considered a a newcomer, mm-hmm. but the reception to Whiplash had been positive enough for a major studio to back him. And so, looking at the script from 2013, we're able to see a work in progress musical, in which yeah. we're not sure to what extent all of these songs were written as we hear them in the final version. Yeah, And in some places, they may just be placeholders for a composition that's going to come at some point. Mm-hmm. But what really comes through, essentially, is that it is very similar in terms of its aspirations and mm-hmm. the themes that it wants to cover mm-hmm. to Whiplash. And it treats everything in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think Whiplash is almost like a prelude to this. And we get to see very similar things, like you said, but it's is a much larger scale. But it's still centered around two characters, just kind of like how Whiplash was. If you really think about it, outside Mia and Sebastian, we don't really get to explore any character, really. Everyone's just kind of there to enhance the main two, kind of like Whiplash. So I kind of like the fact that he just kind of sticks to two characters because he really gets to flesh them out and we really get to care about them. Yeah, the other things I'd love to say at the beginning are, first of all, the length of the script. Mm -hmm. For people who are familiar with reading screenplays, a two-hour movie, we're looking at something like 120 pages. 
Mm-hmm. With a musical, you're giving away something like three to four minutes of screen time to each song. Mm-hmm. So the screenplay itself, the 2013 version is in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And then the final shooting script is down to about 84 pages. Oh, so it's shorter. And it's still a two-hour movie. And it's just the dialogue. Even though it does describe the musical numbers, and because each song kind of tells a story, and that story is kind of clear in the script. It doesn't have any lyrics. It doesn't necessarily have any blocking or or any sort of specific uh, dance moves or anything. But there's ideas there as to what the point of that song would be. But nonetheless, we are... That, I think that's the reason why it's so much shorter. Mm. It's because there's 30 minutes worth of music in the film. And the personal note to this one and why... Really why I started to love Damien Chazelle's work is because I saw this movie when I first moved to California. So it was out in the mm. cinemas precisely at that time. It was the first film I saw in a, cin- in a theater in America overall. Oh, wow, that's interesting. So this absolute celebration mm. of what Los Angeles is, what it is in our imagination. Yeah, I hope you didn't buy into it. <laughs> well, that's kind of part of this, right? right. So it's what Los Angeles is in our imagination, right. what it is in reality, mm-hmm. and how nostalgia can blend with what is real because there's so much about the way that this is made Mm. that suggests it is completely impossible, but it's doing what these classic films used to do, which is to make complete fantasy seem like something that was real. This, Mm. this is harking back to the time of real stardom, the, the kind of magic of cinema. Mm-hmm. And I love that. And it left a huge impression on me. And also, as anyone who has these hopes, aspirations, you want to be a writer, you want to be a musician, mm-hmm. you want to be an actor, whoever it is, mm-hmm. they will see something in common with Mia and Sebastian's struggle and also the cost that it might have in their relationship. Right. in order to achieve their dreams. Right. That's Yeah, that's very well said. I think uh, it's meant for dreamers. It's meant for a type of romantic people. I think when the film came out, there was a sort of backlash that happened after a while, after it started becoming very successful. A lot of people were not seeing the merit the film had because a lot of more cynical people were not about it. You know, oh, it's about, a, it's about a, an actor's... It's about someone who's trying to make it in Hollywood. It's about a guy who wants to open up his jazz club. It's not necessarily revolutionary. It's not necessarily great cinema. You know, one could argue the story is not very sophisticated. So I do feel like it's a type of film where you have to buy into everything you just said, you know, which I do. So I think that's why I loved it. And like I said, I think it's meant for, for dreamers. And I think Damien Chazelle himself said that when he wrote the first song, he wanted to make it as musical, as outrageous, and as big as possible as a warning to audience members, as in like, you're either into it or you're not. So people wouldn't be walking out of the theater much later. So he knew what he was doing and he knew it wouldn't be for everybody. But that's why I really love what he did because he he just went for it boldly. And it does harken to that 
old Hollywood glamour and shamelessly as nostalgic about it. So this does tie into that question of authenticity, which was also raised around Whiplash. Mm-hmm. This is Whiplash, we're very aware of the extent to which it was based on his personal experience. As someone who is an up-and-coming director, obviously the narrative of Sebastian's life must have been something that was resonating with what was going on in his own life. And then the whole idea of transforming the love story into something that is magical when it's fictionalized, when it's turned into music, when it's turned into dance, and then the reality of coming back down from those highs and those Mm. moments where things don't seem real, and then those two trying to piece together and figure out a way that their lives can even revolve around each other. Mm -hmm. There is definitely some authentic heartbreak in this, and Mm -hmm. it almost seems to me that some, if it was an inauthentic film, it would have ended with these two. We're jumping ahead to the end. No, I get what you're saying. I think you yeah. know. I think the film needed the consequences, needed to show the reality of it, and it's a perfect contrast. You know, like you say, when they're singing and dancing, it's all great and wonderful, and that's the fantasy. That's the part or the nostalgia part. Everything that's romanticized about Hollywood, and then when there's no music, you're back to the reality of it you know they're struggling they can't make it they start having problems with each other in their relationship because their dreams are sort of pulling them away from each other and they're trying to kind of cling to each other and and boost each other up but as the film progresses we get to see what the reality of that is and i think if he hadn't had that the film would have felt shallow and it wouldn't have felt it wouldn't have had the same effect for sure yeah so let's start with the beginning of the script And what we immediately notice with this 2013 script is that essentially it follows the same story Mm -hmm. as the final version does. Most of the scenes are there in the final version. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are rewritten in terms of dialogue. Mm -hmm. And certain other side stories get removed, and we'll look at those as we go along. Um, But in general, it's very similar. Yeah. The beginning is exactly the same and the ending is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So we start with the the exact same opening that everyone is familiar with. Yeah. This, uh, the sunny sky yeah. and then winter appears on the screen, mm-hmm. which is a great joke. Mm-hmm. But and then, accurate. And accurate. <laughs> and then um, the camera pans down to the 101. Mm-hmm. All yeah. the cars are just bumper to bumper. Yeah. And then everyone starts singing. Yeah, I mean, it, it shows this. What I really love about that opening sequence is that it shows all these different people listening to different types of music in their cars. Mm-hmm. And this part of the reality of a city like this, it's not a city like London where you have everyone is riding the underground and everyone is kind of cramped in together in, mm. these, in these carriages and kind of forced to interact with each other. In Los Angeles, everyone's in their own car, in their own little bubble, Mm -hmm. in their own world, and they're controlling Mm -hmm. it with their own music. Mm -hmm. And so you pan through, and it's also a very diverse group of people that you see on Mm -hmm. this freeway. It's it's not just Mia's and Sebastian's. Mm -hmm. There's definitely a sense that there's all these different types of people who have somehow ended up in this city 
because it's offering some sort of opportunity for them. Yeah, Maybe it is to be in the entertainment industry or maybe it's not, but they're definitely all there because LA is offering them something that they can't find back home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great because it really kind of puts into focus sort of what LA is like. Like you say, there's all these different little bubbles. Everyone's in their own world and everyone's there for different reasons. And the way the the song, because mostly there's no edit cut, like the whole thing's in one shot. So we're going, we're following a set of dancers and then we move to another and then we go into Mia's car and then we go into Sebastian's car and then we go to other cars. So it's really immersive in the way it was shot too. So you're really in this world and you're really seeing these different walks of life. Well, all of the music combines. Mm -hmm. All of the different cultures are combining the different styles of music, which are so separate when everyone's in their own car. Right. Suddenly everyone is together and dancing around and celebrating and being amongst each other. And it's a very infectious uh, number too. I remember when I first watched it, like the first, I don't know, 30 seconds to the minute of the song, I was like, this sounds like a very generic pop song. Like I was kind of turned off by it because we start with this, you know, young girl, young woman start singing. And I just remember thinking like this, I don't I don't like the song. But by the end of it, I was just like completely hooked. It's such a infectious and catchy. It's a very catchy tune. And the theme of it actually plays throughout the film. So like the the theme without the, the lyrics kind of comes into play as a sort of theme for L.A., I think. Mm. So it kind of sets that up, too. I didn't know anything about the film the first time I watched it. Uh-huh. I just had seen The Nice Guys recently. So I saw that when that was out in theaters mm-hmm. while traveling. So I saw it in a cinema in Hungary, I think. Oh, wow. And um, I just kind of thought, oh, it'll be another interesting Ryan Gosling movie. Mm. And then immediately it was this this musical number. I had no idea it was a musical. Interesting. So oh, wow. I had the exact same... I knew nothing about the film when I saw it. So I had the exact same reaction that you did. At first, I was just a bit taken aback and thinking what is this and by the end of the song i was completely on board with the idea i got exactly what he was trying to do with this opening scene yeah and it wasn't too audacious it was just the right amount i think it was it was really really i think amazing how it draws you in yeah and i think the choreography is what did it for me like the dancing and how it all just came together in one shot i was just very the technical side of it was really what impressed me too i was like that's must have taken a lot of work to like coordinate and to like actually get a freeway to do this number on. I thought that was really cool too. Yeah, I feel as um, in terms of the actual way this is written as well, there is a certain level of trust involved, I think, in seeing the written piece and Mm -hmm. just saying, well, this is clearly his project. Mm -hmm. So you don't need to know everything about what's going to happen you mean in terms of song and everything like Just that? Just in terms of movement on okay. the screen. It gives you about a paragraph or two of... How the song's going to go and everything. Yeah, right? just yeah. just basically saying this yeah. is what this song is standing yeah. for. Right. And you can expect to see this and that. Right. It doesn't give you three minutes of detailed instructions. Correct, yeah. And yeah. so I get the sense that it's basically a kind of trust me, I know what I'm doing here. Mm-hmm. Just Just follow the story. Mm-hmm. And I really like that because reading the script, you get to see exactly what the story is built out of. Mm-hmm. As opposed to watching the musical, you 
so much of the music itself is essential to the story, but at that, in the same way, you start to lose track of the scenes and the dialogue because mm -hmm. you get caught up in these long musical numbers and you can almost not remember how you got to that place by mm. the end of the song. Mm. So just seeing the, the actual scenes and dialogues separately written out is really nice for analyzing and yeah. figuring out why it works. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think it was a great way of introducing our two main characters because we do get to see Mia and Sebastian. And I think it's really interesting Like in the original script or the, the one from 2013, you have Mia listening to cassettes of actresses talking about their crafts or their interviews or whatever which i can completely relate to like that's right. i think that's what every actor does is like listen to other actors talk about their craft to pick up like little hints of how they do it so i thought that was like a great little it didn't make it to the film they obviously changed that yeah so she's actually rehearsing and she's her rehearsing her lines yeah which is another uh true to la life yes. scenario because yeah. no one has time to do anything if they're stuck in traffic for an hour and a half so you have to do what you want to do in your car it's actually perfect for an actor going to an audition if you're stuck in traffic if you plan for it you know you get like time to rehearse your lines and all that stuff so i, I think that's something that a lot of actors could probably relate to as well yeah i'm not sure it's good for writers but no. Well, unless you unless you're recording really yourself, yeah, or recording brainstorming, yourself. Then, mm -hmm. then maybe, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't have that much traffic. It's not. It's not good for readers. Let's say. No, not unless you have um audiobook. <laughs> we can go on forever. That's okay. A, yeah, there's a technical <laughs> solution to everything. But anyways, uh, yeah. So then you know the 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 song ends, and then we follow Mia. So we do get introduced to Sebastian, but we follow Mia's story. So we well, they cross paths. They and that is important paths. because yes. there's definitely a sense that these two are just puppets who are being manipulated by the master storyteller mm -hmm. all the way through. I'm doing quotation marks <laughs> right, here. Right. Life is pushing them together AKA way too much for it to be just coincidence, right? They, mm -hmm. they just keep crossing each other's paths. If you consider how big a city like that is, you wouldn't expect to cross paths that many times. Well, fate has a funny way of working sometimes that's when this will this yeah. romance will really take off but they have so many opportunities to meet each other before there's even a chance of that's it working true. Yeah, yeah and the freeway was one of them although it would be very hard to kind of meet the way they that way but sure but you know this is part of the authenticity of the that's underlying the fantasy of the story mm -hmm. it's just the fact that they don't spot each other across the freeway and instantly fall in love at first sight yeah, I get what you're saying. It kind of grounds it a little bit. You're right. That's true. And and then from there, we do get a sense of kind of what their worlds are. Not so much Sebastian, but Mia, we get she's an actress. She's going over her lines, and then we follow her into her job yeah. afterwards. Which... I think Sebastian's is explained a little in the writing, and it doesn't yes. quite come across on screen because when it's written, it says he's listening to Thelonious Monk and playing the mm -hmm. same bit over and over. And that is what happens on screen, but I'm not sure how many people are going to pick up precisely what is going on in his car. It's no. not coming across exactly as written, I I'd agree. say. Yeah. And for her, it's pretty obvious what she's doing. Mm -hmm. And then not only that, but then we find out she's working at this coffee bean at a studio lot. So obviously, she's, she really means business. And uh, a really important moment happens that will later be replayed in the ending, which is 
this famous actress walks in, gets her coffee, leaves some money, and um, you you see Mia sort of admiring and admiring her, not only her but everybody else everybody in the coffee is, shop, yeah. admiring this actress, which makes sense. She would be there because it's a studio lot. And for people who've seen the movie, you, you know what happens at the end of the film, which we'll revisit. Which I really like that that sort of the mirroring. Circle. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love to call this mirroring, and I th- it it's in a lot of the the screenplays we've looked at so far. Yeah. But this one is very evident, exactly what kind of a mirror this is. Yeah. Yeah. And we get the sense that Mia is just, you know, this struggling actress. You know, she's having issues at work. She's, you know, late for her audition. She spills coffee on herself. You know, the works. Mm -hmm. I think everyone can relate to something like that. And then in her audition, Mm -hmm. we see that she's really good. And that's important. Yes. Because we see that she's really good. Yes. But also... No one seems to be paying attention. She can't figure out how to get other people's attention. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the events of this scene actually happened to Ryan Gosling in one of his mm-hmm. auditions. That mm-hmm. someone came and interrupted him while he was pretending to cry in front yep. of this <laughs> these yes. uh, casting directors. They it can be very uh, they're desynthesized at this point. I think a casting director that's like herding cattle, like. They're not emotionally attached to any single one of them. So to them interrupting someone that's in the middle of a crying scene, it's not a big deal. But we obviously see from Mia's perspective how devastating that is. You know, you're being vulnerable and you're kind of putting yourself out there. And in her case, she's actually doing a really great job and doing a great audition. And then someone just comes in and it's like nothing and gets turned away. But that is important because we we do see that she does have talent which makes us root for her even more. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of time and opportunity for her to get a break. For Mia, it's essentially very difficult because she is very ta- talented, but she goes into these these auditions as well, and she's surrounded by these other women, mm-hmm. all redheads as well, mm-hmm. who are taller and prettier than she is. And mm-hmm. it's, it's very emphasized when she goes into that elevator mm-hmm. as she's leaving. Mm-hmm. And these two other women come and stand right next to her. They're all auditioning for the same part. Yep. It's, it's clear. Yeah. And how how do you stand out when there's so many people who want to do the same thing and on the surface seem to look like each other? And it's, yeah. it's kind of terrifying, I yeah. suppose. It, it's weird, too. You know, it's like there's clones or something. It, mm-hmm. It's a weird visual. And I think in the, in, in the 2013 version... It, it describes, you know, a whole bunch of women looking exactly the same, mouthing words all at the same time. But you don't, there's no uh, voice coming out because they're just kind of reading to themselves, which is a very bizarre sort of image. But we do get to um, explore a little bit of the struggling acting world in the first like 10, 15 minutes while we follow Mia. We also see her, she's living with four other roommates and she gets invited to this industry party. And so we get a little sense or we get a little glimpse into what that is. You know, you have a whole bunch of people just trying to impress one another. But it, it's a musical number. So again, it romanticizes the whole notion of it. And this musical number is kind of like the first one, too. It's very upbeat. It's very infectious. But it does have a moment in the middle where we kind of get a glimpse as to how Mia is feeling. And it's when she goes to the bathroom. And the song kind of slows down and she's seeing she's having this moment to herself in the mirror. And then she comes back out 
and it ends in fireworks. There's a sense of, it's almost like a, an advert on TV. The way that people are being so fake and fake happy at these parties. Mm-hmm. It's like when you see an advert, an advert for alcohol on TV and it's like this, the classiest party, the music is turned down to a, a level that everyone can talk no one is stumbling around. No one is being sick. It's just everyone is gorgeous looking mm-hmm. and they've got their whatever the drink they're trying to sell is and everyone's dressed mm-hmm. looking sharp. And then it's like, buy this. That's the kind of party mm-hmm. that she's going to. But on the inside, she's not that confident. She's right. not that happy because things aren't going that well. And all these parties are just ways for all the people whose lives aren't going that well to kill time and try and pretend they are going mm. really well. And I love how they kind of, mm-hmm. that theme is revisited a bit later on with that writer that she meets at the the mm. party that Sebastian is at as well. Yes. And just the way he's just so blatantly an idiot, but is yes. pretending like he's the greatest writer of all time. And oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so what happens in the, the draft version is that she actually hooks up with someone who isn't Greg. His name is Gavin. So I think in the script... Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I think in the script, uh, Damien Chazelle is trying to tell us that she's not committed to Greg because she's sleeping around. But then that just adds in this extra layer of complexity to... Doesn't she meet Greg later after this? I'm not sure if she... I think Greg is just introduced at the same time. Yeah, I think so. And that's why it's really problematic that she's... So I think it really made sense to take that out. It didn't... It either made sense to have her be single and unfulfilled or in this relationship that's not really going anywhere. But to try and add more reasons why that relationship isn't going anywhere doesn't really make the yeah. romance with Sebastian any stronger. Yeah, it was a yeah. little too much. I mean, we're, we're not we're not even sure ourselves, like, keeping track. But I do believe even after the song, she goes back home with him. They sleep together, and I believe she wakes up, or they both wake up, and uh, he pretty much kicks her out by saying, like, oh, I have to wake up early in the morning, and she leaves, and she forgets her car keys, and inside his room or whatever. So there's an ex- literally a scene right after this. But in the film, it cuts from these fireworks, which is the climax of the song, and then immediately cuts to no parking sign. And mm-hmm. she realizes that her car's been towed. So again, going back to the theme of like musical number, romantic uh, version of Hollywood, everything's great, and then back to reality. And know? that that is another thing that's based on the... Uh the true and imaginary versions of L.A. Because trying to park in L.A. is a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And there's all these weird signs that seem to say something and really it's saying something else. Um, I remember being particularly confused about the ones that have arrows saying no parking at any time and whether that meant on the other side of the street or just the side that that <laughs> sign was, at, you know, that you and with the feeling that, that your yeah. car could be towed, you right. don't want to take the risk. Right, right, yeah. And there's all these different areas where it's you need to have this kind of permit or that kind yeah. of permit. So essentially, it's just it, it's true to life. You don't need to introduce a random character that you're not going to need anymore. Her car's gone, 
and her phone's out of battery, so she starts walking to try and find the next place where she can get a call a cab from, essentially. And I do want to mention, uh, I didn't notice that the the times I've watched it before, but the very end, the scene where she's during that final musical number where she's with the new husband and, and all that, that hotel that they're staying at, that's where she parked the car. It's the same one. So it's another full circle. Ah, I, I didn't even yeah. pick up on. Yeah, I, I thought the street looked familiar. Yeah. yeah. So the car, that street where her car got towed, that's ends up being where she's staying at for, because at that point she's successful, has money and all that stuff. So it's full circle again. Anyways, mm-hmm. and it's also the sense. There's definitely a big sense of the small world theory coming true as the story progresses. They end up in the same places later on. There's a scene where she's driving and she drives past the Rialto Theater. And yeah. that triggers her, me- you know, those kind of things. Mm-hmm. There's definitely a small world sense to this giant city, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I really love the way this is written because you get Mia's introduction. And as she hears the music and she goes into the restaurant, it cuts all the way back to the freeway. And we're back at the beginning of the story. Yeah. But now we get to follow Sebastian. Yeah, and I, learn who he is. I like that. I like that a lot because I remember when I watched it the first time, I was like, ooh, this is new. I mean, this is different, a, a different sort of spin on what I was seeing, sort of a your traditional sort of musical. Mm-hmm. So the, I really like that sort of narrative twist of going back. Yeah, and if, if you had two parallel stories, let, let's try and look at it that way. If you had two parallel stories, so one scene with Mia, then one scene with Sebastian, one scene with Mia, one with Sebastian, you would think, Oh, these two are definitely going to meet each other. Mm-hmm. That clearly the story is is about these two, but mm-hmm. in reality, we with any other actor that isn't an A list star, that could have just been just a random guy in a car. I mean, the fact that Ryan Gosling is so recognizable, you kind of knew. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So these are the two main characters right. just by their star value, essentially, but. If you were to just look at the beginning of that film and put in two unknown actors, you probably wouldn't have picked up that these two were meant to meet in any way. Mm-hmm. You would just think, okay, Mia is the main character. Yeah, because we follow her for a while without cutting back to Sebastian, mm-hmm. which is good because we really get invested into Mia. And I, I mean, as much as it is a romance between the two of them, I do feel like it's kind of favors her, the story. At yeah, least for me. It's I mean, Mia's it, story. It might be subjective in, to, a, to an extent, but I do feel it is her story. I feel like it's, it's Mia's story told from the perspective of the Sebastians, of, who are essentially Damien Chazelle. You know, like it's, it's definitely his viewpoint. He's the one who's saying, look at how much there is to love in this person. So you're always kind of seeing her through those those eyes of someone who mm. is seeing all of her talents and all of her potential right. and everything and knowing her before because you will never get this again once someone is once she becomes a big star she's never going to have that again of someone who just loves her for who she is mm. without anything else tied up with it mm. there'll always be that knowledge that she is this this person but having the faith and the the belief in who she's going to become is something that's very special to those two. And and the same for Sebastian as well. Like she sees in him right. and tries right. to help him. Yeah. 
get that. Uh, That's true, though. That, and, I, and I never even thought about that before. But you're right. That that romance was probably the last romance that was that had nothing to do with her her star value at that point. That's a good point. So I'm sure that must mean even more for her. And yeah. So then we uh, follow Sebastian. So mm-hmm. he's in the freeway and we see him go to his apartment where we are introduced to his sister who kind of just broke, broke into his house. And we kind of see that he's really into jazz, which, you know, we would expect from Damien Chazelle at this point. There's a little bit of a jazz crossover mm-hmm. from Whiplash. The good thing about Sebastian is that he he just loves some music mm-hmm. and he wants it to be his career, but yeah. he's not obsessed. He's not Neiman or Fletcher. He's, yeah, he's no. not driving himself. No, to, no, no. He's not bleeding as he's playing piano for 10 hours straight or anything right, like right. this. He's definitely the ex- He's definitely an opposite version of those kind of Yes. extreme characters. He's got a healthy taste for jazz. He's got this really <laughs> healthy... It's, it's, it's driven by pure passion as yeah. opposed to competition it, or obsession or anything like that. Absolutely. It's drive for perfection. You know, I think he's just... He just loves it. Mm-hmm. And he's just... Uh, it's the purity of that that drives him. Yeah. The one thing that is holding him back or making it hard for him is the fact that there is... And this is kind of the essential question about that kind of music. And I think La La Land itself, more so than Whiplash, is an answer to this question. Because so much of the musical score incorporates jazz in a way that most of us haven't heard before. Mm-hmm. Because it's also a big part of being a, a song and dance musical, tap mm-hmm. dancing. And it's it's all based on this kind of nostalgia, but it's not based on this obscurity is is definitely music for the masses Mm -hmm. but not music that has to compromise on its its aims either it's it's a very difficult thing to describe but i Mm. think essentially the score to this to the film overall is one potential answer to the question that they're asking themselves it's the question that is being asked to sebastian by many characters because keith has a big talk with him about this as Mm -hmm. well can jazz move forward? Is everyone going to be stuck in the past? All of these different art forms are moving ahead. Mm-hmm. And in the music world, there's a sense that music is getting worse and worse. And this isn't just with jazz. Mm-hmm. If you ask anyone who was around in the 70s, is rock music as good today as it was in the 70s? Oh, they will no. laugh in your face. Yeah, hell no. And so there's always a sense with music that in the past it was better. Mm-hmm. to what is happening now. And there's always this looking down with scorn on the music of today. Yeah. And then the music of today will become the things that people are nostalgic for in the future. But we know this is what happens. Yeah. And, and, but this is what Seb's caught up with. There's always going to be something to to yearn for that comes that's from the past. It's also the test of time. Simply the test of time requires time. By default, right? It it needs it. You you have so much music, let's say, coming out this year, mm-hmm. but eventually, by twenty thirty, everyone will kind of start to be in agreement on what were the best albums of right. twenty nineteen. Right. But they're not going to know this year because everyone's competing over. It, it hasn't. We yes. have to see if it stands the test of yes. time. Yeah, yeah. 
and things that sold phenomenally well 10, 20 years ago simply don't stand the test of time and they'll kind of be forgotten. And we have to think that back in the 70s and 60s, not everyone was listening to Pink Floyd and the Beatles and stuff like that. There were loads of other bands that would nowadays just be considered kind of poppy one-hit wonders that everyone was listening to then. Mm -hmm. They didn't stand the test of time and they got forgotten about. Yeah, but I also feel music now, in my own personal opinion, I think that I don't think it's necessarily getting better, but I don't think it's getting worse. I think there's different versions of music and I think there doesn't need to be this is better than this, in my opinion. I love artists like Frank Ocean who are experimenting with new sounds but mixing hip-hop and there's this progressive sort of attitude towards different sounds being mashed together. So in a way, what I'm trying to say is that Sebastian's kind of a hipster when it comes he to is, music. But the, the <laughs> yeah, so what happens with Sebastian is also the fact that he knows what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. He knows what he wants to make. And really, and I think in the 2013 version of the script, it's made a lot more evident that it's actually the success of the music he doesn't want to make that starts to corrupt him. Yeah. And it's toned down a lot more for the final version, but it's still there. Mm-hmm. It's still a corrupting influence on him because it's ultimately it's forcing him to give up on his dreams. This is also something that is real in all of the other disciplines, let's say the creative disciplines, that if you you want to be a writer, for example. Mm-hmm. And maybe you get offered a job writing a regular column at a fashion magazine, but you don't like fashion. Mm. You could say to yourself, oh, well, I'm doing my dream. I'm writing for a living. But are you? If you don't like fashion, are you living Mm. your dream? You're not. You're just telling yourself that because you said you wanted to write for a living. And now there is a way that you are doing so. You're getting paid, but it's not. you're not writing the novels or screenplays or poems or whatever it is you thought you were going to write right so he's falling into that trap and it's weird that he does because we're often able to do this we're able to tell other people what is the right path and then fail to take it ourselves Mm -hmm. so he as his relationship with mia progresses he he encourages her to make her own roles for herself Mm -hmm. to write a -hmm. play in which she can start so she doesn't have to go and mm. depend on on passing one of the auditions, being selected through one of the auditions. Right. But he can't seem to do that. He he gets caught up in that in the band that he joins essentially. He does. And yeah. and what yeah, and when we meet him, we actually see exactly he's doing what you're talking about. You know, he's playing piano and he's getting paid for it, but he's just playing holiday tunes. He doesn't want to do that. You know, mm-hmm. he seems bored and he's upset. And as he starts to get bored, he starts to play his own stuff. And this is the song that Mia hears when she's walking outside. And this is where the two parallel storylines connect. So then we see Mia arrive there. And uh, I like in the 2013 script because she actually has quite a bit to say. Yeah. When do, you she, want to, um, do you want to do your best Emma Stone impression and read out that, <laughs> that <laughs> section? Because I think it's really... I've always wanted to be Emma Stone. Uh, Yes, I can do that. I think this section is really, really interesting. Okay, so in the 2013 version, Mia 
approaches Sebastian after being very moved by what he was playing. And the dialogue goes as, excuse me, I just have to say, that was incredible. I was just, I don't even know how to describe. I mean, I'm not a music expert, so I don't, but you're playing. I thought it was just, just magical. I just felt, felt so transported. And I, and I probably sound weird or something, but okay, I'm going to stop talking, but I just wanted to tell you how I felt. And I just think you were great. And so anyways, this is pretty much what she's saying. She's obviously, she's at a loss of words. She's so moved by what he played, you mm -hmm. know, and this is a, we get to see this is her connection to him because he's playing from his soul. He's playing from what he feels. So in a way, this is what makes that connection between these two human beings. She's just met him. Yeah. And the song has captivated her. Mm -hmm. And he tells her to F off. In the script. In this script. Yeah. So I'm glad it's they took harsher. that down because it, it is really harsh and yeah. doesn't really work with the Sebastian we know. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so once I think this character definitely is at his core a really nice guy. Mm -hmm. um, he has a bit of stress and anger and impatience occasionally, but he's definitely a really nice yeah, person. Yeah, he's not very edgy in, in the yeah. terms. You know what's interesting, though? I just, I, I, I don't know if you know this, but the original people that were doing this film was actually Miles Teller and Emma Watson. These were the two originally cast for this. That makes sense in terms of their maturity. And that kind of response would have been a Miles Teller response. Yeah, and and that putting <laughs> her heart on the line—it's definitely a bit more. The Mia that we know from the Emma Stone Mia yeah. is much more mature. She's she's spent six years in in Hollywood so far, failing to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. She's a bit more um, realistic about life at this point. She's not going to go and open her heart just like that she does try she does she does try to just because mm -hmm. it did mean something to her mm -hmm. but it's not the same as making this whole long speech yeah i think it's about maturity essentially yeah in these characters because they're a bit older than and perhaps even chazelle's own take on it matured yeah in the three years that it took to film this I would imagine so because in between this and and the the final script was Whiplash and that whole experience of making that film I'm sure you know evolved him as in every aspect and I think the way this Sebastian is written almost makes me think huh I wonder if he was writing this thinking he was going to cast Miles Teller because he he was planning on that I don't know the whole story as to what happened with those two but it didn't end up being Miles Teller and Emma Watson so, anyways, in the in the film, well, version, we did get to see J.K. Simmons in this scene, though, as the boss. Yes, we who do. Definitely, is channeling a little bit of Fletcher, but if it was Fletcher, he would have been telling him to only play free jazz that night. So, in my mind, this is the same universe, and that's Fletcher, and this is years later, and he's totally mellowed out. He found love, and he's like super chill now. Okay, <laughs> this is Fletcher in the future, but. Actually, knowing that character, probably not, probably not going to happen. In the film, he, it's, but in the film, it's different. In the film, we just see Mia approaching Sebastian to, to say something, but she doesn't get the opportunity to say anything because he just pretty much just brushes past her. Uh, in the script, the, the reason for his, 
uh, well, not only is he having a bad time, that's part of the reason why he's upset, but the way it's described in the script is that he looks her up and down and just sees L.A. And he's just turned off by that. And just that's when he tells her to F off. Again, a kind of out of character from the Sebastian from the film. Yeah, she's also doing the walk of shame in the draft version, whereas in this version, it's just late right. at night and she doesn't have a car. Right, right, right. So she's looking a bit worse for wear mm-hmm. in the uh, in the draft version. Yeah, correct. And so then we cut to spring. And in the spring, we cut to a, a another industry party, this time during the day. Mm-hmm. One that uh, Mia's attending. and she, Well, we get to see her doing a few auditions and we get the sense that it's not right. it's, it's, there's nothing really happening. She's just going to a variety of auditions. Yes. My and favorite then, one is when yeah. she's playing a teacher. Well, that's the one that she gets a callback for. Yeah, yeah, that's true. When she's with Sebastian. But we, I like, you know, the dialogue of that, you know, yeah. with the with the kid who's like, you be tripping or whatever. And she's being like, read no, by you, this, you be tripping. Re- being read by this 40-year-old <laughs> casting director. Yes, that was so funny. Which is, I mean, I've experienced a couple of auditions where you have a reader that's nothing like the person that's supposed to be in the scene. And it just makes things so weird. Like you, I feel like you have to be a better actor in the auditions than on set. Because in auditions, you really have to use your imagination. Like mm. really use it. Because you get the most monotone sounding readers and you have to work with that. So anyways, side note. So yes, yeah, we do see a lot of auditions and this is the scene that you were talking about where we meet this writer who is just pretty much just talking about himself to Mia and says that there's a lot of buzz around him. It's really cringy watching it again. I was like, oh my God, like, cause I've come across some people like that recently who just talk about themselves and in their brand and like how there's a buzz now and they're excited because well in the script he said or in the film he says something like you know all those years of struggle but you know all this validation now like blah blah blah, like you know all this buzz is making it work like oh my god like shoot me now uh anyways uh there's definitely the sense that a lot of success in writing is a fluke but you should never get onto that high horse because you're going to get knocked off if you get up there i I you need to be yeah. really realistic about your abilities as a writer. Uh, but we, yeah, we see, yeah, we see Mia not very, she's not responding that to that at all. She, she leaves and we see her drift into uh, the outside portion of the party by the pool. And we see Sebastian in this uh, 80s cover band. Obviously Sebastian looks very, very unhappy. And actually in the script, there's a couple of scenes that lead up to that from his perspective in which she's, he's talking to his sister. And I think she's the one that gets him the gig and pretty much says, like, well, you know, you got to pay your bills. There's something mm. to that effect. There's a really nice uh, line. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't there's, know that was a line. The, there's a really nice line added to the rewrite where uh-huh. he says he's a phoenix rising from the ashes. It's just what he shouts as she's already left. Oh, yeah, yeah. In the that, opening sequence. That, yeah. that moment where it's, it's already 10 seconds too late, but yeah. he just came up with the perfect response. And <laughs> yeah. I, I do love that that line. I think it really sums up where he is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And, and yeah. So, anyways, again, part of the screenwriting process is realizing where the fat is and where to cut it, and what is just taking time that doesn't need to be taken. It, like in this case, we obviously know he's not happy there, 
That's all you need to know. Obviously, we know he's struggling just by that scene alone. Like, we don't really need to go in and explain everything. What we actually see as the film progresses uh-huh. is that almost every scene with his sister is cut down to an almost minimal, as in appearing often just as part of the montages. Yeah. that's And actually, I almost... I've seen this film four times since it came out. This was the only time, having read the script, that I even noticed that his sister got engaged. And it just appears for about 15 seconds in one of the montages. It's just him and Mia, and they're having a, a celebratory drink, I think, with his sister and her her fiancé. And I just completely had missed it. Oh. I didn't realize that it was the same woman from that earlier scene. I just didn't pick up on it at all. And But in the actual draft script, there's lots of dialogue around that. Yeah. And he's saying, because the whole story is essentially that she's just met this guy. He's already proposed within three months. And mm. he's just really shocked about it. But it doesn't do anything to serve the actual story of Mia and Sebastian, the La La Land story. And it doesn't really go anywhere except to, to really offer a contrast to Sebastian's unhappiness right. five, five years later towards the end of the film that his sister is happily married, has a four-year-old child, mm-hmm. kind of living that life that Sebastian doesn't get to end up living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think, again, Damien Chazelle did this with Whiplash too where he cut the supporting characters a lot of screen time, which makes me wonder, I wonder if they actually shot that because if they shot that, like I could imagine the actors being a little disgruntled that their scenes were cut. For example, with the sister in, in this film, she actually comes out in the scene where she's performing her one-man show. Like she's in the audience. Like she definitely was designed to have a a more integral part in the film. Because I mean, she was there for 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 her show. Like you mm-hmm. see her in the audience. So I don't know if there was. It just seems such an odd place to put her with no dialogue. like it, And there's no close-up on her. Like, I barely noticed her this time watching it, that she's in the audience. I'm See, like, oh. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, I'm like, she's yeah. there, but it's just so random, you know, as an actress, like, hey, you want to do this one scene, you have no lines, and you're just, like, literally an extra. Yeah. I don't know. Anyways. Well, that's that's kind of what I was saying. Mm-hmm. It It is this... Mi- the only thing that I think the story served for was as a contrast. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to justify when you've got 84, he gets it down to 84 pages of script mm-hmm. and it's still running at over two hours. Mm-hmm. These scenes just have to be omitted. That's, mm-hmm. that's all you can do. If you, it's already bare bones if you're down to 84 pages. Yeah. That is really bare bones. Yeah. Just as a comparison, the first film we looked at the screenplay for for the podcast was Steve Jobs mm-hmm. and that was running in at 170 pages I believe right and still did two hours right yeah so yeah how much more trimming can you do on 84 and it just shows like other than the music it's just really fleshing out these scenes and fleshing out what I feel like the the actors were an integral part of the collaborative process because the draft from 2013 is so different in dialogue Mm -hmm. and i can imagine you know with conversations between the director and the actors and kind of catering and catering around their personalities their take on the characters 
the dialogue would start coming out different. And I know that in a musical, there's a lot of rehearsal because you got to rehearse the moves, you got to rehearse the singing. Like there's a big rehearsal chunk of it. In a normal film, from my understanding, it's rare for a film to get a lot of rehearsal time. So pretty much you stick to the script because there's not that much time to like play with it. But in a film where there's a lot of rehearsal, like months of rehearsal with the singing, I could imagine the dialogue did go through a lot of changes because of the actors. Yeah, you can definitely see it in the the differences between the shooting script and Mm -hmm. the final version Mm -hmm. are mainly in terms of how the dialogue is delivered and just just changing changing up uh, the exact wording of Mm. certain sentences in particular. You you feel that as they start to inhabit the characters, they know how to express the lines in the way that this new character, Sebastian, Mia, is in once they're fully formed. Right, yeah, definitely. And so... Well, there's some very humorous bits in the... Oh, the party. The 80s part. Well, party. Yes. Uh, Sebastian in the, the 80s cover band. Mm-hmm. Mia asked him to play Iran so that he is... <laughs> that was really funny. Yeah, yeah, so he is forced to play a single note yeah. for a lot of the song. And... Yeah, he he then wants to find her after as soon as he gets a break. He wants to go and kind of figure out why she's playing with him. And he he recognize they both recognize each other mm-hmm. from what happened before. The, but there's also an openness, a sense that there's definitely room for forgiveness here because he had just got fired when when he ignored her and and pushed her. Yeah, well, bumped into her as he was leaving. It's it's not like he. He meant it directly at no. her. It's just the fact he just got fired and he didn't care anymore. He just wanted yeah. to get out of there. It was, it was humiliating. He'd got fired from a gig where he played Christmas tunes. Yeah. And so... She was just on his path. But we happened, can... Yeah. This, is a, this is a point where we start to see them flirting a bit. Yeah. Starting to... See, but they're, they're just being witty and there's not necessarily a sense of romance yet. No, but we definitely get an intrigue from Mm -hmm. him we definitely feel like now you have my attention Mm -hmm. well before like you said he was upset he was he didn't care this time something about her catches his attention enough for him to show up at the lot the next Mm -hmm. day at her work and i think that's very telling and that can again this is a, a an example of action versus exposition dialogue where we don't need to hear from him why he finds her attractive nothing like that he shows up at his at her work and that to us is a lets us know. Oh, okay, obviously, he he likes her, and she likes him. Yeah. Well, when they go to find their cars after the party, there's also that fun joke about her. Can you get my keys? And oh yeah. He says, "Which one is it? It's, it's the Prius." Oh yeah, no Prius. And everything is yeah. a Prius. I think the scene where they go up looking for the car and they end mm-hmm. up looking out over the city lit up at night is very critical to the romance forming. It's also the characters themselves. The whole point of that song is about how they're not going to fall in love, how they're not suitable for each other. Mm-hmm. It's what a waste of a lovely night is the theme because he, Sebastian is saying, I should be spending it with the right person. So the So this song is very critical to yeah. their romance forming mm-hmm. because, and it's written this way in the script as well. 
it's the fact that they start dancing around each other and it's like heart over mind at this point their heart is leading them to dance mm-hmm. whereas their mind is telling them not to mm-hmm. and th- th- i think that is also really important for figuring out how this film ends as well their initial reluctance to get into the relationship is founded on something at no point do they see each other and instantly fall in love there's definitely this this very intricate dance literal dance in this case mm-hmm. around the idea of even getting to know each other better mm-hmm. but by the next day he is as you said going to the lot to mm-hmm. try and find her he knows where she works she's yeah. already mentioned it to him so yeah. he goes and that's when they have the closest most intimate conversation that i think right. they have a little side trivia for those who are interested that scene had to be shot they only had three shots at it for two days so because they wanted to get just the right uh, magic hour light for that scene so they only had three takes for each day they had two days to shoot it and three takes each day so that's the only um so they had a limit limited amount of times they could actually get it right i don't know what take it was but it was almost like high stakes for them because in the film industry if you have to go for an extra day of shooting in the case of a film like this, that's an extra thousands and thousands of dollars, equipment, people, everything. So they had to really make sure to get it right. And yeah, it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole film. I just I think it has that old Hollywood uh, feeling to it. You know, the whole tap dancing, the whole uh, melody, everything. I just really love that song. And this is this is so impressive for. Mm-hmm the the requirements to act in this film ryan gosling and emma stone both have to sing and dance and ryan gosling had to learn how to play piano and you notice in every single shot that it's him playing the piano yeah there's no the camera never just sits on the hands and every single shot you see his hands the camera will pan up to show it's him in every single one yeah and it's very demanding and to be able to act this well with the love stories, the heartbreaks, mm-hmm. everything. You've got to say this is a very demanding script. Yeah. Because it's asking so much more than your average script would ask of any yeah. actor, I think. Yeah. And they did both yeah. beautifully. I think they did such a good job at connecting on a on a on an acting level with each other. I think if that chemistry wasn't there, we wouldn't buy into everything else would be meaningless. You know, why are we watching these two sing and dance together if they don't have that stuff that connects to them and us as the audience connect to their story to their characters so yeah they did a brilliant job i've seen a criticism that was saying that well why aren't musical stars appearing in the musicals from hollywood why isn't there a musical star from broadway or something in this film but when you really consider that you you need an actor who can play piano sing dance and have the emotional range for all of these diverse scenes. That's not going to be that easy to do just for anyone in particular. Of course, it's super hard. I mean, and, and also I think part of the criticism that I heard was that the singing wasn't perfect and the ta- tap dancing wasn't perfect and the dancing wasn't perfect. I think that fit every, I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was really, really good. It probably wasn't like professional level, like you're saying a lot of these Broadway stars probably have down 
-hmm. But I think that just grounds it a little bit more because yes, it's a musical, but what you need to, what people need to remember about this musical, it's not like it's Chicago or Moulin Rouge where they're literally singing every other scene. It's like a full on musical. This one, there's a lot of, a lot of scenes that don't have music. A lot of it. In fact, most of the film is without a musical number. And I think that's part of why it works because it's grounded in a sort of reality that I think mm -hmm. if they were to dance super perfect and everything was like 100%, then it would kind of take away from that a little bit, I feel. Yeah, so I think it was appropriate. This, this is definitely a different type of film. It's about hopes and aspirations and amateurism, mm -hmm. essentially. Mia and Sebastian are amateurs at yeah. the start of this yeah. film. Yeah. They are not professionals. Right. They're dreamers. Right. So it's essential that that is carried over in mm -hmm. the same way that the writer was not a professional. When this was written, it was very, very, very unlikely. You would probably say it's like a 1% chance that he was going to be nominated for an Oscar the following year. Yeah, it's crazy. He wrote this At before. At this point, he hadn't yeah. made anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we have this problem with re revisionism of looking at someone and saying, well, I'm nominated for an Oscar the year before and you mm. should be doing this, this perfect film. He's still a brand new filmmaker. It's his second film. And he was, what, 29 when this one was made? Yeah, 28, 29. Yeah. So... I mean, you've just got to consider where most people are in their careers at 29. Yeah. I think he's my age, actually, which is so depressing. <laughs> this is what I mean. <laughs> to demand perfection from, <clears throat> from everything. And I, I think a lot of these things, the, the criticisms about, of Whiplash for not representing what a real music academy is like, criticisms of La La Land for not being true to musicals it is slightly missing the point these are just labors of love from someone who was essentially an amateur and it they just turned out to be so good that he won best director for this one mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. second film he he made mm -hmm. incredible you yeah. know if we actually look at it from that perspective as opposed to this sense that every film needs to be just top level in everything it does. I and think that is asking a lot, but that yeah. is it's it's in the same way that we don't see the work that's put into a lot of things. Which is a lot. And I think I, I I think in the heart of it is these characters, it's these actors, and I think that's what makes the film work for me and, and, and exploring their relationship in a very genuine and real way. And like I said, a lot of it their romance is musical number. You know, so after this, uh, we go into that scene I was telling you about where they're in the lot and like you were saying, they're having that real connection. They're talking about their passions, their likes, dislikes. And it's really funny because, you know, they're really flirting with each other, feeling each other out. This conversation, I think, sets up exactly. It's a really essential scene. Mm -hmm. It is rewritten since the, the draft version. So the dialogue itself flows differently. Um, I think the best line that they put in was when he's trying to explain to her what's happened to that that's, uh, studio that he loved and how it's just turned into a tapas samba place. She She's asking, what even is that? And he says, anyway, that's LA. They worship everything and value nothing. And there's that sense 
exactly of of the hollowness that's underneath this that yeah that for all the dreams they have there is a this heartbreaking sense of hollowness mm. and it's it's going to affect his music career eventually so he's already on he's going to get caught up in that and at this time he gives her the advice he says to her you could write your own roles write something as interesting as you are and mm. that faith that he has in her she takes that and she does start writing and planning for her one woman play mm. and so this scene is so critical because it explains how she becomes a famous actress essentially if they'd never if he'd never shown that interest in her if he'd never broken into the lot and they'd never had that that conversation maybe her life would have she would have just given up and gone back eventually yeah that that does it is like a placing the first piece of the domino mm -hmm. in a way you're right because then we later see what those how that was a stepping stone to get her to her big break mm -hmm. definitely and and like you said yeah that was a good way of kind of seeing where they're at with their passion and and everything and also seeing that I think his passion really comes alive and when he's taking her to the jazz club and he's we really see what what really drives him as a as an artist and how that's sort of infectious on her and 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 you know it starts evolving from there and this is where she gets a call back so mm -hmm. she gets a phone she gets a phone call she goes to the bathroom and it's the show that she was just talking to him about in the back lot about it's dangerous minds meets the oc <laughs> yeah that's and, totally like a CW show, yes. And she, and then she says, she's trying to justify it. So she says, well, it's really like Rebel Without a Cause. And then he says the quote from the movie. And then she realizes, well, th that she gives her it away. Off. Sorry, she plays yeah. it off. She just says, yes. She thinks he's acting weird. She doesn't realize it's a quote because she's never seen it. Right. And then he he calls her out on it. You, I love that moment. This. I love yeah. that moment because you can see how she's like, I, oh, I fell in love with her in that moment. She was so good. Yeah, yeah. But that's what sets them up for their next date as well uh -huh. because it happens that this, this film is on. It's currently being shown at this old theater that he loves. So that gives them a chance to meet up again. Mm -hmm. Of course, he's also aware that she is currently seeing someone else. Mm -hmm. So he's, it's a long shot as well. Yeah, and actually, when they go to, when the the night comes for their date, it turns out that she'd actually made some some plans, some prior commitments already, to have dinner with Greg and his brother, who's in town and seems to be a very successful mm -hmm. businessman. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the um the draft scenes are kind of toned down as well and just get straight to the point and add in a lot more humor a lot of the rewrites add in humor good good dialogue where previously they felt yeah. like placeholders yeah and, and and we my favorite part of that scene is when she starts hearing his tune sebastian's tune mm -hmm. over the speaker at the restaurant she's with her her boyfriend and, and that's happening brother. just in her mind yeah. i imagine yeah, yeah right yeah yeah and so but then that's what she's feeling inside because mm -hmm. he's calling to her in her mind you know she's feeling that 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 attraction to him so in that moment she does a very heroic thing which is she decides to leave greg and just go for and, and go to sebastian mm -hmm. and we see how 
ecstatic she is about it. So I, I really love that moment because usually those moments come at the end of a film. Mm-hmm. And this one comes early on, I feel. That's different. And for all the for all the scenes that get chopped eventually, this scene cannot, mainly because it seems that so much of the visual language of this film is so rooted in 1950s Hollywood, and in particular the Griffin Observatory. Mm-hmm. It was such an iconic statement for Chazelle to... It's, it's all about the nostalgia for that film and for that time. And so Rebel Without a Cause basically serves as this central thing that that the film is going back to and mm-hmm. emulating in the modern day. Whereas a lot of the stuff that's taken out, because Mia's original one-woman play is actually about Ingrid Bergman. Mm-hmm. And that's all taken out and it becomes about herself. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff about classic Hollywood is yeah. definitely stripped out. It but actually, it feels like he could never take out the rebel without... Like that That was the line for him. I need to keep this in because right. he's definitely a musician. He's definitely someone who loves music, but he also loves cinema. Mm-hmm. And there was just one thing he said, you can't take that out. That's what I need to keep in. It, it means a lot to this story. Otherwise yeah. it would have been taken out. With also visually Bergman. too. Yeah, yeah, you're right. With the observatory and all that, and yeah, the, the actually the one woman show, the Ingrid Bergman, like that, that was actually very well thought of in terms of the the early draft. Like, there's actually mm-hmm. we get a lot of the one woman show fleshed out in in the scenes. So I thought that was really interesting. It that makes a lot, lot of sense for me. It. Yeah, it makes a you lot know. of sense for her as a because she, it's the same it's her mirroring sebastian in her own way because sebastian is mm-hmm. constantly mentioning thelonious monk and charlie parker and right. other jazz greats who he admires and actually they cut that out a bit for mia they make it more about her own personal story and her aunt which is very nice but she she's no longer just this actress who idealizes other actresses that have come before her, she actually, as we noticed, she hasn't seen Rebel Without a Cause. Right. And I think the few that she mentioned, she mentions Notorious Mm -hmm. and a couple of others. Casablanca. Casablanca definitely was a big inspiration for her. But the true inspiration for her and who gives her the inspiration to do the performance that gets her the audition to get her her big break is her aunt. Mm Mm-hmm. So that is a really critical thing, and I think that really helps to remove that link between her and other actresses and make it about something that's intrinsic to her, something that's her personal. Yes. Just And also that, that kind of passing of a baton from an older generation down to her. Yeah. Because we get the yeah. sense that her aunt didn't make it big. She, she enjoyed her life in... She died in, from liquor. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) She enjoyed the life of traveling and being in the entertainment industry, but she never made it big. Yeah. yeah. And definitely probably died with some resentment, but also had time to pass it on to the young Mia, who then could fulfill those dreams in her own life. Yeah, and what that does, it it kind of anchors Mia in a more emotional context for the audience as well. It's no longer some intellectual, like, oh, yeah, she's admiring previous work because that's an intellectual thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, we get that she's emotionally invested, but 
if it's someone that she loved, like a family member, then we also invest in it more emotionally because that's a more personal thing. So I think I can see either Damon Chazelle or his talks with Emma Stone kind of came to that conclusion. There's, de there's definitely certain crafts where there's that sense of your identity being the key part of what makes you a, a good artist. Mm -hmm. And then with music, there's also a slightly different approach because collaboration and teaching is so critical. Mm. You can't just be given a piano and become Mozart. It's, it's all about practice and learning from others and listening to other records. Mm. Whereas we, maybe it's a way that we just, we like to imagine it, or maybe it's a bit more real in the sense, but we do often feel that with writing and with acting, that there's something unique about that person. They're able to do something in their performance that isn't something you can teach. Yeah, because it's very technical, you know, when it comes to playing an instrument, there's a technicality, like there's, it's not subjective. You hit mm -hmm. that note, you hit that note. There's no ar arguing about it. Yeah. A performance can be very subjective. To and a hundred, a hundred different actors could have played these characters. In a different ways. In different ways. In different ways, yeah. And probably a lot of them would have done great jobs as well. There yeah. would just be different interpretations of the same story. Right. Of the same character. Correct. And I think that's what I love about acting is the fact that that's their instrument is their body, their mind, their emotions, their spirits. And, and that's really what I gravitate to when someone's acting is like when they're vulnerable, you can tell when someone's being vulnerable and when someone's being guarded as an actor. And I think that having given her that, that, that story about her aunt, that last song that she sings, the audition song, maybe not maybe it would not have had the emotional impact that it does but because it's rooted in that then it becomes much more engaging i think as a story and also for the audiences as well so yeah but yeah you're totally right it's very different one thing that i do think is interesting is that the draft script has a definite middle point and that all of the first half is this perfect romance it's it's all leading up to the perfect romance story and around the middle it just flips and goes on the downward spiral literally fall like mm -hmm. if you really pay attention when you watch the film when that title first of all this the 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 title fall is against black yeah when spring and and winter were against a visual uh, image but fall was just black and then literally a couple of scenes into fall, things go really bad. What we see with the, the final version actually is more of a three-act structure, I've noticed. So that you get these, what is it, 80, it's, it's rounding it up to about 90 pages that around page 30 and around page 60, you kind of get these mm -hmm. senses that, that these stories are kind of closing. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure how he, how he planned it precisely but i can feel that there are these almost conflicting rhythms that there's these three acts but also mm. a middle turning point as well yeah which which works very nicely and um definitely what happens in the flip is that sebastian has joined this jazz band that well he's told it's a jazz band by his old 
friend who's already kind of wronged him in the past. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely established in the, so- in the story. Mm-hmm. When he meets Keith, played by John Legend, for the first time, he's visibly annoyed by his presence. He, he wants to get away from this guy as fast as possible. But he, he gets sucked in. In the draft version, I think they have a much deeper conversation about what Keith is planning to do. And he, he seems more like a natural good jazz musician who is just trying to incorporate a few more modern elements into yeah. his music. And the version we end up with, there's no jazz involved at all, basically, by the yeah. by the end. Yeah. Yeah. But also I think in the draft version, they they meet. Yeah. They have a jam session. They, that, they, yeah. That apparently convinces him because they're all such good players. Yeah. And, and, and all, that's taken out. It's taken out and also they don't they didn't know each other before. Like they literally just meet in in that scene. Yeah, he's impressed by him in the in the yeah. jazz club yeah. and says Oh, I'd love to to give. I'd love for you to give me a call. Yes. I'd love for us to play together. What I'm doing is a bit more, yeah, a bit more modern. But I'm st- like, he and Sebastian is kind of convinced because he thinks this guy knows his stuff, mm-hmm. and that that gets taken out. And I mm-hmm. think that's interesting because it it just emphasizes the shallowness and the the lack of commitment and loyalty and all these things, you know. Yeah, and also Mia is more crucial in his decision in terms of directly influencing Sebastian to go for it. Like she really pushes him to to do it in the draft version. In the final version in the film, the thing that makes him finally go for it is that he overhears Mia talking to her mom and she's saying something about like uh not being stable financially yeah which makes sebastian take the job for the money chazelle actually takes out every conversation mia has with her mother except for that one and it's the one that is most about their relationship and about how difficult the situation they're in is because neither of them are making money at that point Mm -hmm. she's already quit her job Mm-hmm. So that she can do the play, which she's paying for out of her own pocket. Mm-hmm. And Sebastian doesn't really have a steady job. And then Keith offers him. In the draft version, it's a grand per gig. And that's toned down in the final version to a grand per week, which is still yeah, a very decent amount of money to mm-hmm. be making. And he's getting extra from merchandise and tickets. Yeah. But I mean, when he was on a grand per gig, I imagine if he was playing six days a week, he was absolutely loaded. <laughs> so, no, he was making quite a bit comfortably yeah. to live so, in LA and well, comfortable enough. He I was, would assume. he was just about able to pay rent in LA, which and with a little extra money. Yeah. But it's fun. Okay, so you mentioned that the mom and the mom having more of a presence in the draft, and there's actually one scene that I don't know. I wish they kind of would have kept because. Me personally, that like that's so my mom, and I think a lot of people would resonate. Which is when uh, Mia calls her mom and tells her that she got a call back for that TV show, and and in the in the draft version, it's a show that's going to air on Oxygen, which is a channel. And her mom is really excited for her, so it's like, well, so what's a, she doesn't understand what a callback is, and so she has to explain is that she's going back for another round to get potentially close to be the lead for a pilot for the show. 
So then when it becomes really clear, her mom dissects it as like, oh, so you are getting called to maybe be on a show that maybe might be picked up to be on. She's like, is it NBC, CBS? And she's like, no, Oxygen. And her mom has no clue what that. So already just by her mom asking these questions, like totally tears her down, puts Mm -hmm. her down, her spirits are down. And that's so funny because moms don't really intend to do something like that, but they just naturally sometimes do. You know, when especially when a kid is trying to go for something and it just feels that there's a, a gap in the understanding of what her parents know. And and I can relate to that sometimes because it reminded me of my mom. And that's the <laughs> thing with ways. with acting in particular, there is just when you look at people's careers, often there are just bit parts on, for example, that they're, they're an extra on law and order. And then if you actually look back at someone's acting history, Mm -hmm. that's what it was for three years. And then they got Mm -hmm. a supporting role and then continued from that. It's just Mm -hmm. a very different way as opposed to uh, a writer would be appalled if they got to write one line for a TV show and then write (laughs) one line for another TV show. And then three years later, they were allowed to write a paragraph on a page for a TV show and then and then got to write four pages. You know, like it just yeah. doesn't work that way. You don't right. you don't contribute such a minor amount and then have to think like, oh, it's uh it's maybe getting a call. I mean, the rejection is obviously staggering in writing. Mm-hmm. So the scene that the scene that changes everything in the film is the scene where Sebastian has prepared a meal for Mia. He's cooking something and they've both been having their own issues separately with their respective careers. Mia comes in tired and she's kind of uh, happy at the at the sight that he's cooked something for her. But the scene goes completely off the rails and everything that's been sort of mounting all this tension literally comes to to a head in this scene. And what I really love about the scene is that it's literally two characters talking to each other at a dinner table and that's it but there's so much going on subtextually at the beginning that everything starts to sort of creep up and pretty much everything that they've been thinking about for example for Sebastian is uh, him doubting himself as an artist and then her bringing it up really is beginning to make a is really beginning to sting and you know what she what's been bothering her is that she hasn't been spending any time with him and sort of what she's been thinking and sort of is what we've been thinking as the audience is this guy has committed to do this whole tour with this band that we don't, we obviously see that he's not in love with this music. And that's the point that she brings up, but he takes it as, well, I did it for you. And now you're telling me this. So I feel like there was a lot of miscommunication in the relationship. These things weren't, uh vocalized before they weren't verbalized so now they're there's that conflict and unfortunately their egos start to sort of clash with one another and it kind of gets i think that the moment of no return for me in that scene is where they're at this point they're going back and forth and you know she says he says well i'm playing something that i find that people finally like and then she says like since when do you care that people like you? Since when? 
and he comes back with, well, what are you talking about? You're an actress. And that's the moment that everything changes. We just see the pain in her face, how it just hits her. And also, from a sound design point, it's also the moment that the the music that's been playing in the background stops. And there's this really loud silence yeah. where it's just everything just falls apart in this moment. And and it's hard to do that record scratch uh, kind of thing nowadays because we've all got digital music. But we know Sebastian loves yeah. to listen to his records. So actually, it's it a sense. natural... Mm-hmm. It, he's still using the old record player. Yeah. So it's it's also worth noting with the rewriting of this that he originally said to her, well, you're an actress. Someone's got to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. And that's not exactly the same. I think a way that a lot of the dialogue is written by the end is that it contains killer lines. Whereas before it was just dialogue that that was functional it served the function Mm. and now it becomes these killer lines and that in particular there's a sense there's definitely a different sense of going too far in in their relationship it's still very unrealistic in a way because if that's the worst thing he could say to her (laughs) Mm. it seems a bit unbelievable then again within the reality that has been created for these characters it does seem like a very hurtful thing for him to say because what is holding them together is their mutual belief in each other's success Mm -hmm. yeah exactly so that is the reason why it would sting it's almost like a betrayal Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like and he starts to blame her as well for him taking the job as opposed to taking ownership of that. Again, that's very important. Right. And they've obviously haven't been seeing each other a lot at this point, and that's become very clear, and that's probably hindered the relationship as well. Them yeah, she wants to know when he's going to be back for good. Right. Because he's earned enough money at this point, it seems, a lot more than he was earning before. Yeah. So he's way ahead of whatever saving plans he had originally for opening the club. Yeah. The relationship gets... Even worse, when Mia goes up and performs her one-woman show and he doesn't show up because he's too busy doing doing a photo shoot, which he didn't know was going to happen. That's important to know. He didn't really mean to. But nonetheless, he doesn't arrive on time. And by the time yeah. he gets there, she's already, she's already been heartbroken because, you know, not a lot of people showed up and she has to pay back the... She doesn't even have the means to pay back the theater. And uh, she overheard some guys criticizing her her act as well. So everything just kind of was the perfect storm. It was one hit too many for her. And also, uh, I think in the draft, it was kind of different. In the draft, people really loved it, the show. And he made a point of actually writing that in the script, that people were actually very enthusiastic about her performance. Not only that, but we, uh, Greg... If you guys remember, the original boyfriend from first act is actually there with his new girlfriend. And he's visibly moved by her performance. He even says a line like, I never knew. You could tell he's very impressed by her talent. Yeah, I think that that scene had to be taken out because it's too reminiscent of what the ending is going to become. So it's almost like Greg is having his Mm, ending, ending of this film moment. And it's a bit unnecessary because they never really had any anything special. Right. 
Uh, and especially it doesn't work for us as the audience. We just want Mia and Sebastian to be the couple. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because that moment of two ex-lovers and yeah, that that that, that feeling, that vibe mm -hmm. of that is definitely... It's him seeing end. her up on the stage just as Mia will see Seb up on the stage at the right. end. Yeah. So I think it was kind of meant to be a mirror of that maybe. Mm. Or it just fell flat and I'm, I'm glad it was taken out. Not so glad her, her show didn't go as well, but yeah, but I it think makes more sense why she would leave straight away. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, the stakes needed to be a little bit higher for her. And uh, I mean, obviously, she's visibly upset. She goes back home. And that uh, leads us to the moment for, the, for her in which everything changes, in which uh, Sebastian gets that phone call from that casting agent, casting director, looking for her, who happened to be at that show. So mm -hmm. it wasn't, she thought it was the worst thing ever, but actually it was, within that, yeah. you know, within that tragedy, there was a blessing, which is that this casting director was in that audience, saw her and thought she was great enough to not only call her, but continue looking for her when she couldn't even reach her, which is a point that Sebastian makes to Mia when he goes up to her when he actually drives all the way to Arizona, I believe. It's Arizona in the draft, and it, it's changed to Boulder City, Nevada. Nevada. In the final version, yeah. You know, he drives all the way over there and convinces her, you know, like, you know, this is your dream. And he, at this point... I love how easy it is for him to find her as well, because he knows it's a house in front of the library, which <laughs> is established early yep. on as well with the stories yep. of her aunt. So it all comes together, and I love that Again, you get it down to 80-something pages. Mm -hmm. Everything is relevant at this point. It's, there's very little left that is, that is useless to the story. Yeah, yeah. A lot of things come back or serve as a way to get the characters to a certain place. And they feel organic in the sense of if you buy into the theme of fate and dreams and the, the universe and all these things, if you buy into it, then it is organic because you start seeing these synchronistic connections that you know that in our own lives we can sometimes see so like you said all these things are bare bones and nonetheless it still feels organic in the sense that it doesn't feel like the the writer is like plotting like this has to happen and that has to happen obviously every writer does but it's the way it's conveyed in the story that means if you're a good writer or not because if it feels organic in the story then you're doing your job and it does a cynic might not think so but like i said this movie is not for cynics and like i said if you buy into the whole theme of the film a lot of the things it talks about which is you know chasing your dreams fate synchronicity all these things of uh, paying attention to that then then the movie makes perfect sense and it feels organic in that way like you say the library being there like everything just the fact that her aunt went to Paris and that that's where the shoot is going to be. And all of a sudden, you know, when she's at the audition, she's told to tell a story. And all of a sudden she does have a story because of her aunt. So all these connections that, so, you know, obviously if you're a cynic, you're not going to buy into all these sort of devices that the writer is doing to connect everything. But that's not what the movie's about. And I think if you buy into the whole uh, destiny, fate, romanticism, the dreams and everything like that, then everything makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's really noticeable that um, the end is very, very short on paper. Mm -hmm. So 
the whole uh, section that's going to follow. So they have their their last heartfelt conversation where she mm. tells him that she's going to go to Paris, and suddenly it's all flipped around because she was struggling with the idea of their relationship working while he remained on tour within the US. Mm-hmm. And now she's going to have to go to Paris for seven or eight months. Mm-hmm. And then potentially her whole career is ahead of her. So it's going to be very, very complicated. Right. And there is a sense that they're, that it is falling apart, but they say to each other that they'll always love each other. And that is mm-hmm. basically all that can be done at that stage mm-hmm. is just this this last <clears throat> heartfelt plea to each other, but really knowing that maybe this will be it. Yeah. And then I love the way that the transition happens, that it goes to winter, which is following the exact same loop that we're used to. We've gone from winter to spring to summer to fall. And then we expect to see winter again. And then that next line appears on the screen and it says five years later. Mm-hmm. And really this this only occupies the last few pages of the mm-hmm. script. When Mia walks into the coffee bean, there's a Christmas tune playing. Oh, that's a good point. So there's, it's, yeah, we're back to winter full circle. So there's this mirror. There's Mia is the actress who's coming into the coffee bean. And is treated the exact same way. It's it's almost like it's a ritual. It's almost yeah. like this is the way things go. Everyone knows how it goes around here, mm-hmm. and they all follow the same roles. They're all mm-hmm. playing the same parts in that in that place. In the draft version, Seb's story is a bit different. He's only running a music shop, mm-hmm. he, so the rewrites allow him to actually find the success he wanted. He just doesn't find the love he wanted. Mm. And I think that is significant. I mm-hmm. think he's too much of a solitary, sad figure in the in yeah. the original version. Yeah, that's true. He's just left with heartbreak, whereas Mia gets all the stardom. And it's it's a lot easier for us to take that. It's still a heartbreaking ending, but it's a lot easier for us to to take it in the sense that, well, we get to know that Seb gets to fulfill his dream mm-hmm. of owning that club and bringing that and you see how many people are enjoying the music that he's putting on mm-hmm. and it's become such an important place mm-hmm. for people and it's it's presumably part of this kind of revitalization of the music he cares about so that's yeah. really great to see yeah even though like you say he doesn't have someone or that we know of because it's not really explored or, or mentioned but he does get to at least follow through with with that and when i first saw the film and it said five years later it was such a jump like it almost felt like wait that was the conclude are we at the denouement like we're already at the last part of him like what did happen and looking back now i always used to see the 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 fantasy flashback as sort of the climax of the film where they're pretending that things went a completely different way but now I see the climax of the film as her audition. I see that as the culmination of everything. Uh, and that's why I really feel like it's Mia's story in the end. Because hmm. the climax feels like after that, like you say, they have that conversation they have at the park. And then, then we cut to five years later. So it feels like that was the peak. And then we have this extra sort of like, well, if this would have happened, then this is kind of how it went. 
Yeah, the fantasy flashback is is very important because it they ultimately know that this perfect relationship would only be possible as a fantasy because in order to have it, they have to rewrite every scene of their lives together. Mm-hmm. Even the scene where she sees him and he's just got fired for playing the music right. that the boss didn't like at that restaurant. Yeah. Even that end, that scene is changed into him kissing her straight away. So it would require such a significant shift from reality to fantasy yeah. for it to really become true. And I think that's kind of what explains that last smile that he gives to her at the end. Because even though they've, and we as the audience relive their whole romance and we think, oh, it should have worked, it should have been them. But that last smile is very telling because it just tells us that ultimately it never was that way. And they both recognize that. Mm. But at least they made it. And that's all you can do really is make it through life. And there will be painful moments. There will be heartbreaks along the way. Yeah, and the fact that they still love each other, there's still that, you know, there's no animosity, obviously. There was it wasn't an ugly breakup. I mean, things got a little rocky there at the end, but nonetheless they have this mutual respect for each other and the fact that and the fact that he did make it and kind of kept her logo too that she had sort of playfully designed for him. I think that shows very clearly the place she still holds in his heart and the fact that he did want to follow his dream all yeah. along. He's learned from his mistake of being yeah. in that band. Yeah. And I just, I mean, there was a part of me that was like, oh man, that sucks. Like, why didn't they, you know? But I think if the story had ended with they get together in the end and everything ends really happy and joyous, you wouldn't think about the things that we were just talking about, which is the cost of going full force for your dreams. And, and what that can mean for your relationships. If you have a dream and you're serious about that dream, then it's going to cost you just because the life is that way. You know, unfortunately, when he mentions it in the park after the audition, he says, like, you have to give it everything. If you get this part, you have to give everything to it. And that's what she does. Because of the ending, it makes the audience think about these things. It's not just like, a, oh, we're done. And that was a great film. And that was joyous and, and charming. And it was amazing. But yeah, you still have all that stuff. But you're still also mindful of those questions. Again, like Whiplash, asking those questions. I think it's also very interesting that having seen the film so many times, the enjoyment is that you can always revisit that romance anyway. It is still there. You can go back to it. And it's just the ending that it doesn't end on that note. But every time you you go back to the beginning, you feel like their relationship could end a different way all over again. Mm. Like there is still that potential. Even though you know the movie's always mm-hmm. going to end, it's it's obviously gonna end exactly the same way that that it has every time before. Right. But you always you because of the magic involved, because of the music the the fact that it is this blend of fantasy, nostalgia, and reality all together, you feel like anything can happen every time you go back through it. And you enjoy it more. At least I did. Because especially knowing the ending, you really appreciate those moments a little bit more because it doesn't 
end on a happy note or it doesn't end yeah, with them you, together. You appreciate it because you know it's transitory. Yeah, and I think that was my perspective going in this last time I saw it. I, I really enjoyed the times they were flirting with each other because it's like, this is awesome because this isn't going to always be here. Uh, anyways, I love the movie. I, I think I can totally see the perspective of people who have the reservations about it only because I understand like from another perspective, it doesn't have that level of sophistication that some people are looking for in film. But I think it has a lot of heart and it has a lot of uh, charm and the music is great and the acting is so transportive. That is what engages you with the characters. And Yeah, and it's definitely, it is self-justifying. The characters are saying to each other that they need to show what is most important to them what they're most passionate about yeah and this film is definitely a labor of love uh, that is yeah. essentially someone who was a complete amateur doing their passion project mm -hmm. and as a dreamer myself like this watching this film every time i watch it is like inspiration for me it's like a boost it's like a a kick in the butt of like all right you know you keep going for it at least for me i take that perspective from it Every time I watch it, it just like gives me sort of hope in a way. That's great. And I think um, this is going to be a very interesting trilogy because we've seen the dark obsession side. We've seen the wonderful, magical optimism, the dream of L.A. and mm -hmm. and stardom. And then the third film we're going to look at is very, very different mm -hmm. and a completely different setting as well because mm -hmm. we're going to be in Texas and in space. So I'm very excited because I haven't seen it. So I am super stoked having watched these two and then going into mm -hmm. this one. So yeah. And see fun. how he matures as a as a director. Mm -hmm. Wasn't written by him as well. So the mm. uh, from a screenwriting perspective, we're going to be looking at a screenplay that was the product of four years research into a particular person's biography. It's probably one of the best researched biopics ever because unfortunately biopics tend to have a really bad reputation for staying true to the facts so right cool i'm excited all right that's all for this week thank you again for listening and do make sure you come back two weeks from now to listen to our episode on first man there you can find more information about the show other episodes to listen to and some information on how you can support us Thanks again. Goodbye.